Okay. So we're up to the Shubhas of Eben Ezer from the Hadarom. Just as a matter of some housekeeping, I will be here, Mias Hashem, uh, next week, Monday night, but two weeks from now, which is Monday night, February 13th, I believe, I'm going to be in New York. So just a I guess, and I should be returning the following uh, Monday night. Okay, so we uh, we did start the Chuvas of Ebenezer. We did the first part of uh, the first Chuva of Simon Aleph of Ebenezer, which is very involved in dealing with issues uh, of adoption and uh, legitimacy. But then, as is uh, often the case with uh, with Chuvas, that uh, the posek will write about one main topic, but then there'll be a secondary topic <coughs> as well. So the secondary topic, which appears at the end, it has to do with Yahadusa Shalisha Habamin Anusim, regarding the determination of Jewishness of a woman who uh, was uh, allegedly from the Anusim, the conversos, uh, those who uh, were forcibly uh, converted uh, back in the days preceding the Spanish Inquisition, uh, the conversos, the Anusim, were already an issue in halakhic literature uh, prior to 1492, which is the date that we all know about uh, the, the Spanish Inquisition. Already in the 15th century, postings such as the Rashbesh, where we're writing about what to do with Anusim, uh, those who were converted and had to act as if they had left the faith, and outwardly they would act as Christians, but on the inside, they still were very, very Jewish, and how would they go about doing tshuva? And we all know that uh, the uh, entire movement to reenact the smicha that uh, took uh, took place um, around, uh, also around that time, a little bit afterwards, it was uh, was motivated in large part to enable Bate Din to be convened so that they could administer malchus, so that those who were afraid that they were chayav kares for converting out and for uh, worshipping Avodah even outwardly, would be able to get punished in this world, so they shouldn't have to suffer in, uh, in the next world. Um, so, one thing that I never really fully understood was the notion that after these conversions, these forced conversions, took place uh, during the 1400s, maybe going into the 1500s, uh, so I would understand why people in Spain and Portugal might have to keep a low profile and not make it known that uh, they were really Jewish on the inside and maybe worship Judaism secretly and furtively, but the idea that this had to continue for another half a millennium and that 500 years later you would still have families who came from the Anusim who were still worshipping Judaism secretly, well, it's kind of like you know, the people who were still patrolling you know, after World War I and nobody you know, sent them the memo that the war was over, like at a certain point somebody could have just let them know, well... You know, now it doesn't have to be secret anymore. You're living in free countries where you can kind of practice your religion and you're not going to get into trouble. So I never really fully understood that. I remember that when I was uh, serving as the director at the Bethany of America, so one of my first years when I was there, this must have been the late 1990s or so, there was a woman who came to visit me in the Bethany. I, I remember her name. It was Yapa de la Costa. Uh, and uh, she was on a mission that uh, she uh, wanted to argue that many of uh, the residents, uh, the, the Spanish residents, who uh, lived in uh, the southwestern region of the United States, in Arizona, New Mexico, in those uh, areas, were really Anusim, and that, that they uh, just had to be brought back to uh, their, uh, their faith and had to be taught more about their Judaism, and she was on a crusade 
uh, so to speak, uh, to uh, um, bring them uh, back to their uh, to their Jewish roots. And I remember being a little skeptical. I said, well, you know, if they were really Jewish, they could have returned a long time ago. And also, it's kind of hard to believe that people who are not living outwardly Jewish lives would maintain the uh, pedigree of only marrying Jews and uh, continuing to be fully Jewish throughout all these centuries. But I didn't profess, I don't profess, to be a major expert in this area. Rav Schwartz seemed to have much more of a comfort level. Rav Schwartz was a little bit closer to the source, you know, than, uh, than I am, obviously. But he seemed to have more of a comfort level with the notion that you could have people living in Mexico, Panama, Central American countries and South American countries and the like who really were from the Anusim and really had preserved, preserved their Jewishness, and uh, there were certain families uh, that, sort of, that were known to have uh, maintained their Jewishness. There were certain experts, maybe elders within the community who would be able to vouch for certain families and like. So that's what he talks about here. The second part of the um, of the tshuva, and I have in the, the Maramakomos some accompanying materials as well. So that's when with respect to the second question. Remember, these are questions that are addressed to uh, Rabbi uh, Rabbi Union in California, who is uh, the Menahel of the Best and of the Rabbinical, Rabbinical Council of California. He actually contributed an article for the uh, the volume, the memorial volume of Hadarom as well. It said regarding this woman from Panama, nearly the key. So he has two explanations to why as to why he thinks that this woman really is Jewish. Um, now, what's the nafkamina? The nafkamina would be whether she would have to go through a formal conversion ceremony. Let's say that she hadn't really been practicing Judaism. Now she wants to practice it fully. So that the Ramah in Hilchos Gerim, that's a source one in the material, says if you have a Yisrael Mumer, somebody who was outside of the pale, maybe they uh, had uh, left the fold entirely and had converted to another religion. Sometimes Mumer is code for Mishumud that they've uh, converted to another religion or certainly have left all the Mishumud. Now they want to repent. So they're still Jewish because we say Yisrael Shekhata, Akapi Shekhata Yisrael so ain't so echalitbo. It's not necessary to have a tefillah to have an immersion for the sake of conversion. However, rakmi debanon yeshlo litbo lekabel of dibi chaveres gimel. However, on a rabbinic level, it is appropriate for the person to go through a tefillah to go through some sort of an immersion um, in front of uh, three rabbis or three uh, qualified uh, individuals. At which time they will declare that uh, they are reaccepting upon themselves uh, the um, the faith. Uh, and uh, the source that's given to, for this is in Muke Yosef in Masechus Yevamos, where the Muke Yosef seems to explain that this is uh, some sort of a tshuva process. Right there on that Ramah, there is a comment of the Vilna Gon, which I don't have in the materials. The Vilna Gon brings a mock for this uh, from a, uh, an incident that's described in the Avos Rabbi Nason. It's one of the Masechus Kitanos, Avos Rabbi Nason. We all are familiar with Pirkei Avos, but there's also Avos Rabbi Nason, which is much longer. In Avos Rabbi Nason, it tells the story of a woman who was taken captive, and there were two men that tried to rescue her, and one of the men was taken captive himself, and then he was put sort of in the same cell block as her, and there was, and it seemed like a little suspicious. They both left, and he insisted that he go into the mikvah, and that she go into the mikvah, and uh, but nobody suspected him of any kind of uh, illicit relationship with her, because that might be one reason why they might have been going to the mikveh afterwards. And he explained, it's good that you gave me the benefit of the doubt, that you were down the kapskus, because he went to the mikveh because he had not been exposed to the outdoors for a long time, and since he hadn't eaten or drunk for such a, such a long time, so the exposure to the outdoors would naturally cause him to have a nocturnal or some sort of emission from his body, um, a seminal emission, so therefore that's why he went to the mikveh. 
While in the case of the woman, the reason why she had to go to the mikvah was because while she was in the cell, she had no choice but to eat the food they gave her, and the food that they gave her was non-kosher, and therefore she had to purify herself from the non-kosher food. This was a woman who, was not, who had not made a conscious decision to eat a non-kosher food, like, you know, with the Anusim. So we say they made a conscious decision. They're going to worship a Bodhisattva rather than give up their lives for Kiddush Hashem. But you're allowed to eat non-kosher food in order to avoid being killed. So she didn't really do anything wrong. But nonetheless, she needed to go to the mikvah in order to uh, be removed from her impurity. So it would be a Nakamina, for example, if you had somebody who had not converted to Christianity, but their, four, their ancestors had converted, and now they discovered that they're really halakhically Jewish and they want to go back to um, be fully uh, observant. So do they have to go to the mikvah? So if, the whole reason going to the mikvah is to do tshuva because you sin. Well, this person didn't really sin knowingly. They didn't know that they were Jewish. They would discover that they're Jewish, so they immediately go back to the folk. But if we say that it's, it's, in, that it's in order to remove an impurity because you were eating non-kosher, you were going to churches, you were doing things that are uh, inappropriate for somebody who's Jewish, so then that person would presumably you know, have to go to the mikveh as well. But, Excuse me. Yes. So you're saying if somebody's previous generations had converted to Christianity, they're yes. still Jewish? They're still Jewish, that's correct. So that's uh, the principle that we have in the Gemara. That Yisrael Yisraelu, that if you're Jewish, you remain Jewish forever. There is a passage in the Gemara in Yubamas and Dap Yudzayin, um, towards the end of the first parak of Yubamas, where it talks about whatever happened to those ten Shvatim. You know, the Aserasa Shvatim that were exiled during the days of Sheh Ben Eila, um, the northern kingdom, whatever happened to them. So uh, it seems that, like, according to the, um, according to one opinion in the Gemara, there are two different Lashonas of Shmuel. According to the second Lashon in the Gemara, seems that really the, the, there were both men and women that had progeny, that had future generations. According to the first answer, maybe the women, you know, just avoided having relations with any of the local non-Jewish men wherever they were exiled, and therefore they didn't continue to have Jews into further generations, and that's why you have to assume that they're not really Jewish. But according to another explanation of the Gemara, no, really the, uh, there were children that the Jewish women had with non-Jewish uh, men, but nonetheless, uh, the Chachamim just made a decree, that they made them into God. Because of the fact that they were all practicing uh, a different religion, they had left the fold of Judaism 100% entirely, so they would go there, they made a decree that from now on, all of the Ten Shvatim, it's not necessarily every member of the Ten Shvatim throughout the world, we know that Sheba Dunn found, you know, a place in Ethiopia, and uh, according to the, the way the Vibaz understood it, all the Ethiopians today, we assume, are from Sheba Dunn, but... Nonetheless, um, uh, according to uh, this opinion, those Aserah Shashvatim who went into a particular location in exile, they were all decreed to be non-Jewish. So there was some poskim, and we're going to see this will come up again in later Chubas of uh, Schwartz. Um, uh, there was some poskim who wanted to argue uh, that so too, if a person leaves the fold entirely and converts to another religion and starts to act like a Christian, that uh, they also are not considered to be halakhically Jewish anymore. But the vast, 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 vast majority of poskim will say, no, it's not true, from various passages in, in the Gemara. It says that if you have a ger who went to the mikvah, um, uh, meaning they, a convert goes to the mikvah, and then we say, and he comes to Tavo Ba'ala Biyarad Hareyo Ki Gomer. The person is considered to be 100% Jewish. So we say, yeah, we know he's 100% Jewish. He just went through a conversion process. So the Gemara says, the Chiddush is 
the other way that if the person goes back to their previous religion, their previous ways, um, they're just considered to be like Esau Mumer, they're considered to be a naughty Jew, uh, and if they would uh, contract a marriage with a Jewish woman, it would be considered to be a valid marriage, and she'd still be considered to be Jewishly married unless he gave her a get. That's what the Gemara says. So from that Gemara, uh, many, many poskim say, as well as the Gemara that says about Achan, that Apopi Shachata Yisrael Chata, Apopi Shachata Yisrael, Apopi Shachata Yisrael, that even though he sinned, he's still considered to be Jewish, um, that, that uh, we see that you can't lose your, your, your Jewishness. So then the question is, okay, you can't lose your Jewishness, but you have to go to the mikvah. So uh, Rav Schwartz says, okay, I think this woman really is Jewish. Number one, she remembers her, her maternal grandmother, she remembers watching her grandmother Gdabin and she was God fearing. And number two, that for 200 years, somehow Rabbi Schwartz did the research. I don't know how he did this research. I would not be capable of doing this research. But somehow Rabbi Schwartz did the research and he determined that the family had been uh, presumed and had been known to be Jewish for 200 years in <coughs> Panama. And therefore, ain't the fuck some. And therefore, you should not be concerned about their Jewishness. They're genuinely Jewish. And he quotes Arash Beish. The Arash Beish, again, was a 15th century authority. I believe the son of the Tash Beits. And the Arash Beish um, says uh, that if you do have somebody from the Anusim who comes back, it's not necessary even for them to go to the mikvah altogether, he says. He says, if you take a look, this is uh, the second source of the materials. That those who are the children... Of, uh, of individuals who had apostatized to another religion, Hanukrim Anusim, known as the Anusim, the conversos. You don't have to give them a hard time. You don't have to make sure that they're accepting all the mitzvahs and say, "Oh, I'm afraid that you're not, you know, you don't have the requisite commitment." No, if they're genu- if they're genuinely interested in being Jewish again, don't scare them off. You have to treat them with kindness. And he says, it's not necessary. These are the children already. Remember, that he's assuming, not like the others, the Rabbi Nason, that you would need a tefillah just because the person was eating non-kosher, for example. And when the person goes through the process, you give them a bracha. What's the bracha that you give them? Well, you, uh, you give them a, a bracha um, that haslachna, uh, uh, that this person should be given a success, Le'ebed, meaning servant of Hashem, Hanikva Shmokach, who's going to be given this uh, Jewish name, Meshochilav Chastecha, and you should, uh, you, 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 sh- you should uh, give him your, your, your chesed, your kindness, um, you should uh, point towards him, Hashem Shetisa Liba just as he was inspired to return in repentance, Shlema, Nefanecha, so the person should continue to grow in his love and fear of God and that his heart should be opened in your Torah and that he should be um, pointed in the right direction. It's very interesting because this bracha that was established by the Rosh Beish to be conferred upon the Anusim when they wanted to return to the faith where he didn't even require it to be, he didn't even require that they go to the mikvah. That's the bracha that we confer upon converts nowadays. Every single convert who goes through the conversion process, I give this whole bracha to them afterwards. It's straight out of the Hamadrich, straight out of the book published by the Rabbinical Council of America of what it is if you're a rabbi you're supposed to say in all special occasions. So, you know, I just... 
uh, rely upon the book. And uh, this is uh, and this is the bracha. This is the blessing that uh, that we give to every single kav. It's a very very meaningful, very very powerful blessing. Um, and that's uh, and that's what we say. So says Rabbi Schwartz. So that's what you should say to these people. Ain't uh, certain um, that um, you should just follow the procedure of the um, of the tashbeish. Uh, if they are from the children of the Anusim, they don't require an actual gayrus, and they don't, they don't even require uh, a trip to the mikvah. It's very interesting that um, Rabbi Schwartz did not only apply this principle with respect to this uh, woman, but he kind of applied it in a different way, in a different context, in a case that came up before me a few years ago. It was the case that there was a, a young man who was living in Israel already. He was living in Israel, and he needed a tudat yahadut. He had originally been from this region, and he needed a certificate of Jewishness, so they came to the Chicago Rabbinical Council. He said, oh, uh, my mother uh, had gone through uh, some sort of a procedure with Rabbi Schwartz where it was determined that my family was Jewish. You could just check the records. So I checked the records, and sure enough, his mother had gone through what looked like a conversion. In her case, Rabbi Schwartz had decided that, I guess, she was living a life where she had grown up um, basically not affiliated with Judaism, but had a tradition that she was from the Anusim, and she had gotten married to a particular man, it makes it more complicated because the man that she married happened to be Jewish and he was a Kohen. So he's married also to this man who's a Kohen. Now they come to Rabbi Schwartz because uh, she wants verification of her Jewish status and Rabbi Schwartz determines based on his assiduous research and there's like a hundred pages in the file, very difficult for me to sort through, but Rabbi Schwartz based on his research determined that she really was genuinely from the Anusim. The family maintained their Jewishness and their impeccable Jewish credentials throughout all of the centuries, 500 years, whatever, you name it. And therefore, because of the fact that she grew up kind of practicing, I guess, Christianity or a different religion on the outside, she should go to the mikvah. So we had her go to the mikvah, and there was a full bezin. But the nusach, the, um, uh, the actual certificate that was uh, provided, it says that, that she went through kind of an acceptance of different chaveros, that she was reaccepting her uh, faith, uh, but, but that uh, she was uh, not uh, uh, really going to a conversion procedure because she was really Jewish to begin with, and therefore she could remain with this man who was a Kohen. And now they had these boys, and these boys were Kohanim. This wasn't a, just a question of verifying their Jewishness, but they also were practicing kahuna. So uh, I looked at the materials and I said, Rabbi Schwartz is very, very broad shoulders. Fortunately, I don't have to delve into this because he already took care of it. So I wrote a letter saying that uh, the boy uh, should be viewed as Jewish because uh, the mother was already pronounced as Jewish by Rabbi Schwartz. But I appended this very, very unusual certificate because I figured, full disclosure, full disclosure, you know, let the, the Rabbinu see the certificate and they'll decide, you know, if they're comfortable or whatever, but I, I'm, I'm comfortable relying upon Rabbi Schwartz. We sent it along and they accepted it, you know, no problem. So it's very interesting because there was an actual certificate of this sort that was um, drafted by the former Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel, of Mordechai Eliyahu. And that's source three over here. Nusach to the Lashavim Lachet Gavisov. Mordechai Eliyahu was asked on behalf of these Anusim that, that when they do come back to Judaism, could he frame a special Nusach, a special version of what their conversion certificate would say? So be clear that it's not like a genuine, regular conversion, but it's something, it's something different. It's something different. Um, so that's what he did. He said, this person um, who wanted to to return to uh, the bosom of the Jewish people, to take refuge underneath the wings of the Shekinah, 
and we checked and we saw that the person really accepted the uh, the uh, yoke of commandments and we accepted this person and accepted all the Torah and uh, then uh, they and then they say and we said in front of this person the Nusach the version of the of uh, the text that, that was drafted by the Rashbesh Hatzlachna, this person should um, be must continue to be successful and growing in their love and fear of God uh, and so forth and so forth, um, and that this is what should be furnished for uh, the person who goes through now the, this process. Now you'll see the Ramadachai Elio is assuming that the person should go through Tbili. He says Tavo mitumas the person does go through, unlike the Rosh Beish, who said it's not even necessary to go through a tefillah, say, no, no, have them go through a tefillah, have them go through an immersion in the mikvah. So, is this, you know, a good nusach, is it not a good nusach? So, they shared it with two people here in Chicago. One was with Aaron Soloveitchik, and the other was with Gedalia Dov Schwartz. And they both said the same thing. This is great, I love it. So, Schwartz, Aaron Soloveitchik, wrote his letter in Yutes Tevis, Shnasa Tapshin Nun Tes, Right? That's not, that's what, 1999 or so, something like that. He says, uh, Karasi is uh, maybe already the beginning of the year 2000. Karasi is the now, somechas yadia nusach hazeh. He says, I like this nusach, I like this nusach. Says Rav Schwartz, Gamanima ashivas the nusach anavi yeshlis mochalav, I also like this nusach, and you can rely upon the nusach. He also wrote uh, this uh, in the same year based other, Tavshin nun tes. Uh, so uh, the question then uh, becomes, Okay, so what does it mean that you like the Nusach? That you're just trying to assuage the feelings of these people because they feel that they're really Jewish? You say, yeah, we're going to say that you're just really returning to the bosom of your faith. But we're having you go through a full-fledged conversion uh, procedure because we think that this is really a conversion. We're just not going to call it that on paper. So what was the thinking of Avaron Salvation? What was the thinking of Schwartz? So I can tell you the thinking of Schwartz was that as we see from this tshuva, as we see from the Maise that I told you about, sometimes he really did treat them as 100% Jewish. Al-Kadekaka, who was a woman, she could be married to a Kohen, and the children would be Kohanim Kesherim. Recently, Rav um, Yerachmiel Fried Shlita um, from Dallas published a Sefer on Geras, a seminal Sefer. It's been working on for 20 years or so. Uh, he wrote an excellent Sefer on Yom Tershen and Kihokhaso, which some of you may have. And now he wrote a Sefer on Geras. It's called Emes Ritzedek. I've ordered it from uh, Keshe Stav, and I'm waiting for it to, to arrive. But in the meantime, somebody had sent me a computer file of it uh, a number of months ago before it was officially published. In the computer file, I am not cited, but I'm told that in uh, the Safer that was ultimately published, uh, one of my articles is cited by him um, uh, with respect to, to uh, conversion issues because I wrote a tshuva in the Safer Confei Yona about uh, what do you do with an African-American woman who can only carry her hair in dreadlocks does she have to cut off the dreadlocks before she can immerse in a mikvah, or can she immerse together with the dreadlocks? Um, and I found the heter for her to keep the dreadlocks when she immerses for the sake of conversion. Shiva, yes, yes, okay, Baruch Hashem. Um, so, um, so it merited apparently a mention. I didn't find it in the computer file. But what I did find in the computer file, I can't say that this made it to the final draft for sure, because I haven't, I don't have a possession of the final safe. I didn't see no reason why it shouldn't be there. So he talks about the Anusim Shabizamah. He talks about what do we do with the Anusim nowadays? He says that there were Anusim once upon a time. Shadayin Yadu Yechusam Kisrael Gemurim. He quotes the Piskechuba. He quotes the Rashbesh. He says, "Yeah, the Rashbesh was in the 15th century. That's kind of like you know a little while ago, like you know like our grandparents' generation, like you know 15th century." Just says so at that point in time, there were those who could really trace their Jewish lineage. About Elushiz Manenu. But he says, those in our days, I mean, this is what I would have thought, but, you know, again, uh, I, 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 you know, I defer to the Gedolim. 
He says the poskim already have said it's already hundreds of years that they're living next to the non-Jews. They're not living in a place where there is any longer a strong sense of anybody being Jewish. They need a full-fledged geiris. That's what Rabbi Fried writes. So he says that it's really a compromise kind of thing. Yes, you give them a full-fledged geiris, but you do it with a tremendous amount of love. Normally we say, that you should discourage a convert at least three times, so these individuals we don't discourage so much. So then, I looked in the footnotes to see what he has to say about, you know, what about this special, like, Nusach, that Mordechai Leo came up with. So he says that, um, yeah, um, uh, that uh, he has a letter from Mordechai Eliyahu from Aleph El of Tavshin Nun Hey. This is about four, year, four years earlier than the um, signatures of Rav Schwartz uh, and Rav uh, Soloveitchik sets out. Um, uh, Shitzis, well, he wrote, uh, so he says in that letter, um, he writes, that they have to follow all of the procedures of uh, the Geirus. But you just shouldn't push them off. And you should call them, oh, your returnees. Yeah, you know. Returnees, the Chayka Yahadus. The Chayn Shemati Mehagon of Shmuel first Shlita, who? The Pshita Shehem, another great Chicago personality. Then he says that whenever you do a Geirus to these types of individuals, and we know we still have such Geirus, it's done. It's not done for the most part by our Bezdin, actually. There is a separate Bezdin in Chicago that actually works with a lot of the uh, Spanish population that comes here, um, and uh, they do Geirus. I don't know, you know, exactly where, what Nusach they use, um, but they still refer to a lot of these people as Anusim. Um, and then he has in parentheses the following. Um, and this is interesting because Schwartz is not here to respond um, or rebut uh, this little parenthetical, and I don't know whether it made it into the final volume, but it's in my computer file. He says, and I find it astonishing that some Rabbanim have said that they should be considered to be full-fledged Jews. How could such a thing be? They've already lost their presumption of Jewishness for hundreds of years, five hundred years. So he says, hey, that can't be. That's impossible. So, I, so I'm just showing you here that, well, apparently, you know, for short thought, it was possible. Um, so uh, I guess we have, you know, uh, a little bit of a difference of opinion. But he traced back this He did. He really did. A, he did a tremendous a amount of research. It would be true as a rule, we don't... But if you if you can trace people, right, but Schwartz certainly wouldn't take anybody's word for it. He would, but but he held that, that there were ways of you know going into the community, asking verifying. people who were the experts, verifying those who were experts within the community about different families, different communities who remained intact, and so forth. Then he would rely upon that. Sure. What's the rabbi? This is the rabbi you quoted from Dallas. Yes, Rabbi Fried. Rabbi Yoachmiel Fried. Thank you. Okay. Yes. I mean, the truth is, I heard a similar approach from uh, Rav Shafter as well when he gave a shir on this uh, subject. That, uh, of course, from a, a, um, a pure halachic perspective, we would tr- we would view any of these conversions as as, as full fledged conversions. Uh, but uh, but again, uh, we see that it's not necessarily true across uh, across the board. And as Emil said. It could be that maybe you would say that it's a default proposition, but it's a rebuttable presumption. It's a rebuttable presumption. Maybe if you have really, really good research about a particular person in a particular family, you can come to a different conclusion. Okay, let's move on to Simon, uh, Simon Base. Simon Base is another question about Mamzeris, another question regarding Mamzeris. And this is a Shayla Be'inyan Mamzeris Be'isha Shekibla Divorce Kuki. 
Now, of course, nothing, you know, um, especially um, uh, unusual about the caption. It means a woman received a civil divorce, but she did not receive a Jewish divorce. And then she got married to somebody else and has a child. Now the question is, what do we say, what's the status going to be of the child? And this shuva was written in Tavshin Nun Al, which I guess is around 1991 or so. Uh, and this shuva was written to Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Muskin, who is, uh, at that point in time, was the rabbi of the uh, young Israel Century City. And at this point in time, is the rabbi of Century City. Uh, and um, this was, I guess, early on in his uh, pulpit uh, career. And uh, what happened was that there was a young man who was getting ready to get married, and everything is wonderful, and they're about to, uh, they're making all the wedding arrangements, and the date is scheduled, and it's like the last minute. And suddenly, after like a little bit of Drisha Rechikira, it uh, is revealed that uh, his mother uh, was previously married to another man, another Jewish man, and never received a get from her first husband. And uh, this boy, unfortunately, was born from the second husband. So what do you do? Is the boy a mamzer? If a mamzer, so they can't go through with the marriage. And the boy is kind of, be, you know, kind of stuck. Um, it's going to be a very, very sad situation. Um, uh, so not only that, but there's another weird set of circumstances that occurred over here. It says that this mother, this woman, it's a real uh, tzatzko, because after she got married to the second husband, she ran away again. And she ran away. She ran off to Turkey to um, be together with some Muslim fellow. So uh, she actually left the faith entirely. And the second husband, who presumably had no business being married to her in the first place if she never got a get from her first husband, this line I don't understand at all, and there's no context or explanation provided by Rabbi Schwartz other than that maybe they didn't have all the information in front of them. But he says the second husband got a heter, got a heter from the CRC to get married, um, despite the fact that the uh, second, that his wife had no interest in a get because she just ran off to uh, live with a Muslim man. Um, so they allowed the uh, man to give her a get through the procedure known as zikoi. Zikoi means that Zach and the Adam Shlobafanov, somebody else accepts the get on her behalf because it is such an unmitigated benefit for her to receive a get that even though she's not here herself to receive the get or even to appoint an agent to appoint somebody else as an agent to receive the get on her behalf, we say Zach and the Adam Shlobafanov, we're going to appoint somebody as an agent to live to receive the get on her behalf. So this is a little bit odd because there's a question as to whether she's really married to this um, uh, this man altogether if she never received the get from her first husband. But the assumption was, and you'll see this as the chuba goes on, that her first marriage was not really a valid marriage, and therefore, so it made so if, to the extent that, that there is any validity. Um, to uh, the second marriage, so that would be, you know, based on the assumption that there was no real validity to the first marriage, and uh, therefore, uh, in order to just cover all of our bases, so to speak, it does make sense uh, that the husband should be given some uh, type of a dispensation to remarry, just to be on the safe side to a get ayude zikoi. Get ayude zikoi is kind of a... What happened? Yeah, Why? What, what was wrong with the first marriage? That's what the rest of the shuvah is about. So it says, "Action is so What do we do with this boy who was born from the second marriage when the first marriage he never received a, a get? So he says that, that it turns out that, that the first marriage was a reform marriage. It turns out that the first marriage was performed by a reform rabbi, and we have a general principle: a general principle that if the marriage is performed by a reform rabbi, so then we can uh, be makel. 
then we can be lenient. But Moshe Feinstein has a lot of chuvas about this. One of them that I reproduced in the materials is on the bottom of page three, which is in Chayla Gimel Simen Chavhei. And Moshe Feinstein gives two reasons why a reform marriage, as a general rule, as a general rule, Moshe didn't really think that this rule had any exceptions. As a matter of fact, um, the reform a reform marriage does not count as a halakhic marriage because in order to have a halakhic marriage, you need two things. You need to have Adam Sherim, you need to have kosher witnesses, and the kosher witnesses need to witness an actual Jewish marriage ceremony. So he said in your typical reform marriage, you're lacking two things. Number one, you don't have kosher witnesses, and number two, there's no real marriage ceremony. A marriage ceremony means that everybody understands that by virtue of the husband, the husband, giving a ring, an object of value, typically a ring, to the kala, that is what effectuates the marriage. But he says, yeah, nobody knows what's going on. If there's any ring at all, everyone's just kind of like throwing rings at each other. The husband gives the wife a ring, the wife gives the husband a ring. She doesn't know that it's the him giving her the ring that's effectuating the marriage. Um, and she thinks that, that it's when the, uh, the reform rabbi says, so you take, you know, this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife, and you take this man to be your lawfully wedded husband. I now pronounce you man and wife. Da, 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 da. That's what they think is what really creates the marriage. And nothing to do with the rings altogether. If anything, it's just, you know, a giant, you know, a three-ring circus. Or at least two-ring circus. So, uh, the, um, so therefore, um, uh, says Rav Moshe, you are, you are, there are two problems. Number one, there are no Edom Sherem. And number two, there's no Maise Kedushin Klaus. So as a result, he doesn't even think that there's, uh, there's a need to be Machmir at all um, to do a get all together, but since you know you, you always you want to be on the safe side, so you do a get. Says that maybe if there's a child that's already born from the marriage, uh, if you take a look at the very last line of the tshuva uh, on the on page four, where he says v'hacha, the very very last line, v'hacha she'eshlem banim. When you're dealing with a couple that actually had children from this marriage, from let's say uh, the woman got married to a second man. And now there are children from the second marriage. Leka gamala lahachmir, so you shouldn't even be machmir for her to get a uh, get now from the first husband. They shall yitzik kom amzeres alein, so that people won't say, oh, she needed a get. So that means that maybe she really was married, and now we have to worry that the children are mamzerim. But Moshe, in a different shuv, in a different context, said that uh, you don't. We don't always worry about that. Sometimes when there is more of a suffix, it's better to do a get luchuma and uh, to find other grounds uh, to be mako with respect to the children, not to consider the children mamzerim. Because whenever you have any suffix regarding whether a child is a mamzer or not, uh, the main rule according to the Torah is that mamzer ba'dayos of achman of mamzer suffix. That whenever you have any suffix, then it's no more. It's, there's no isadaraisa. Um, we don't say a person is usher as a mamzer if there's a question maybe they're not really a mamzer so therefore since it's only an isad rabban that we're talking about there's more room uh, for leniency with respect to, to the um, to the children anyway um, uh, so here we're dealing with that leniency because we're not talking about whether the wife can be married she ran off with some Muslim fellow we're talking about whether the and she got a get zikoy anyway a get ayyadeh zikoy somebody accepted again on her behalf we're talking about with respect to the um, um, with respect to the child who was born from um, the second, uh, the second marriage. The husband uh, was the first. Um, uh, the, the first husband. We don't know what happened to him. Uh, but, but at least the child from the second marriage. That's what this chuba is all about. So he quotes of um, Rav Moshe. But what's interesting is that most people nowadays, most rabbis, if you uh, would uh, present this situation to them of somebody who was a child born from a second marriage of a mother who had previously been married to or through a reformed marriage and never got a get. So say Rav Moshe says that it's okay and uh, therefore the child's not a mamzer. But they don't realize that Rav Moshe came with a history. Rav Moshe's not the one who made this up out of whole cloth. This really has a whole history of a postgame that spoke about this type of a situation um, uh, going uh, all the way back to the Rebush. 
and there's a Maharsham, and Rav, Mo, and Rav Schwartz was very familiar with the Maharsham, Shalom Schwadron from the late uh, 19th century, and the Maharsham dealt with uh, this situation um, in Europe with respect uh, to a rabbi who he called somebody from the Mishadshim. The Mishadshim is another form of uh, what, how we would refer <coughs> to the reform in Europe from uh, this new sect. You know, to the, uh, what he said, that we were talking about uh, these reform rabbis who uh, really are not, um, do not follow halacha. They shave, you know, uh, in, in, in a way in which uh, they shave all of their payas uh, against uh, against halacha. Rubam kekulam, meaning apikorsim. The vast majority of them are apikorsim. Um, they don't know anything about tiv kiddushin. And cheskas masem mekukolim. And uh, their actions are considered to be completely corrupt. And Emiyakim Aidim Mishas Kidushin. And he says, and they don't uh, set aside any Aidim, they don't set aside any witnesses um, uh, at the time of the Kidushin, according to certain postkim. If you're not Miyachid Aidim, so then everybody who's there, if you have those who would be invalid as witnesses because they're relatives and the like, they just combine with everybody else. So therefore, the, you, the, by definition, you don't have kosher witnesses. Not everybody is so concerned about that shita, but that there is a shita like that. So I rub Salavechik, when Rav Salavechik would perform a wedding, he would always designate witnesses and he would say that these, he would designate two kosher witnesses and he would say that these are the two co-witnesses to the exclusion of all others, to the exclusion of everybody else. Um, but here, you know, so it's just to be, you know, uh, on the safe side. But the Maharsham says that even if they would designate witnesses, the reality is that you, the assumption is that the witnesses would not be uh, kosher witnesses anyway because everybody... Um, in terms of uh, the uh, reform, um, in terms of the reform uh, witnesses, um, he says that uh, they're all people who are minim, they're apikorsim, they don't follow halacha in any way, shape, or form, so therefore they're invalid to be witnesses, and as a result, you could be, uh, you could be mekel, um, uh, to assume that uh, there is uh, no need in such a case, at least with the evidence, there would be no need for a, um, uh, for, for a get. Uh, and um, if you look on the page three, that's where you have this Maharsham, Chelik base Simen Kuf, Simen Kuf where he says uh, that uh, that the person who performed the wedding is a Russia, and uh, the and, and if you do the research and you see that this person was was among the Ede Kiddushin, so even if I had two Ede Kiddushin of what, which one of whom was uh, invalid, so then that would cause uh, the Adam to be invalid as well. So you look at the second paragraph, look at the third uh, line. He says it's much more likely that if he performed the wedding that either he or his like or his ilk were the witnesses. Um, so in such a case, he says uh, that um, there is no chazaka, there's no presumption that it was done correctly. Go four lines to, from the bottom of the chuba over here. The presumption is that they were invalid. Even if we only know from the relatives who were there, that everybody who was uh, present or was designated as a witness were amongst those who were not Shomer Mitzvos, then you can assume that that was the case. And uh, what about the fact that they lived together as husband and wife afterwards and everybody knew about it? Shouldn't that constitute Aegis testimony? So he says that, he quotes from uh, the, um, the Rivash, um, uh, who says that, that uh, with respect to a couple that got married um, uh, through, a, um, uh, through courts, uh, through the Arcos, through like a civil court, and uh, to them, this is what counts as their the genuine marriage ceremony. You don't have to worry that they're living together for the sake of getting married 
all of the years afterwards, because from their perspective, the Kenyan, the actual transaction of becoming married, took place when they were in the courthouse, when they weren't valid witnesses, and therefore any relationship, intimacy that they have afterwards is not for the purpose of Kedushim, because the Adaita, the Kedushim, I mean, Shonim, Daru Yachad, below the Shem Kedushim, Acherim. Because when they live together uh, all of those years afterwards, it's not for the purpose of saying, oh, now we're going to get married. So therefore, there's no covenant to get married. So it doesn't matter if there were witnesses who know that they were uh, living together during that period of time. So Rav Schwartz relies upon uh, these uh, these considerations. He does quote from another tshuva of the Maharsham, which I have here as a source above in Simon Kup Samach Zion, where he says that if somebody happened to be the officiant at a marriage, who was Misha somebody who just was not a big Tamachakam, he didn't train well, he didn't know how to uh, really, uh, he didn't know the ropes, he didn't know how to go about officiating properly um, at a marriage ceremony. He says, you can't say, He says that, that um, our, he quotes a Knesset um, Yechezkel, who says that if somebody performs a wedding who doesn't have the qualifications, he didn't have smicha, he didn't finish his smicha requirements, whatever, um, so then we put him in cheirim, but we don't say that the marriage is invalid because if the person's orthodox, chances are that there were two witnesses there were kosher. How hard is it to do a kosher wedding? I mean, he may not have done it with all the bells and whistles, but chances are it was at least a minimally kosher if, they, if there were kosher witnesses and a ring was given over. So um, so the Rav Schwartz says, oh, is that a, um, a kasha? Is that a contradiction? The Marasham says that, that the fact that the person's an ignoramus who performed the wedding is not a reason to invalidate the wedding. So Schwartz says, well, number one, in that shuba, he wasn't talking about mischachim. He wasn't talking about somebody from the reform, where all the people were presumably, um, were presumably Rishayim. And, um, and number two, he says that, that there, um, that, that, that the Marasham was trying to make the point that in every single case, you have to look at all of the details of the case before you can jump to a conclusion that a particular marriage was invalid. So you're saying that, uh, that, 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 uh, that this is the point that Marasham is making. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, this rabbi was an ignoramus, therefore the marriage is no good. No, you have to look. Was he an ignoramus? Was he reformed? Was he uh, somebody who just wasn't well-trained? Who was present at the wedding? You have to look at all of the ins and the outs. And then he says something which I think informs his uh, general approach uh, towards uh, these um, these issues uh, in general. He says uh, that um, we have to uh, understand, he says, Ayen Yushami Sanhedrin, this is uh, this is about 12 lines up uh, from the end of the tshuva. He says, He says that when we speak about what's a, uh, the possibility of prohibiting a child from marrying within the Jewish community to say he's a mamza, we have to go overboard to try to find the heter. Why is that? He quotes the Yushami. I'm not sure exactly. I look in the Yushami. I'm not 100% sure what he's referring to from the Yushami, but I do know that uh, there is a Yushami, not in Sanhedrin, but a Yushami in Masech Shabbos in Rabbi Eliezer uh, Demila, um, that's quoted by Rabbi Yitzchak Echadon, and the Yushami is also quoted in Yavamos, that talks about how if a person is going to be prevented from marrying, uh, so then uh, it's considered to be like Pikuach Nefesh. The Yushami has sort of an unusual case. It speaks about somebody who, when they were a little baby, or they were not necessarily or maybe a youngster, whatever it is, they became a kushafchah. They uh, became, uh, their testicles became mutilated. And as a result, we know, 
Kushaka, that if a person has a t- mutilated testicles, they're prohibited, uh, in certain cases, from marrying within the Jewish community, and uh, therefore, um, it says the Gemara, that Rabbi, um, that the Chachamim, uh, the Chachamim, uh, that Rabbi, Rabbi Avin uh, said, uh, that we have to take, uh, if this person is not going to be allowed to get married, uh, so then we should really pray for this individual that they die. Uh, meaning, what does it mean? Pray that they die? Meaning their life is not going to be worth living. So the way that most of the portion understand it is not like pray the person will die, but it means to say that their life is so going to be so miserable that it will be as if you should pray that they should die, and therefore, on the contrary, you should do everything in your life to ensure that they be able to live, that they should be able to get married. That's the way that it's generally understood. That's the way the Pnei Moshe says it. He says, because if the person's not going to be royal then uh, they're, uh, then it's going to, to uh, be an impossible life if they're not going to be able to uh, be uh, permitted to get uh, to get married. And says of Yisro Kachanim, based on this Gemara, based on this Yerushami, came Mitzvah Rapsa Lishtadil Lehatera Binyanim Gelu. Therefore, it's a big mitzvah that you should try to be maker when it comes to, to uh, these types of issues. Somebody just published a sefer called Kahal Hashem. It's called Kahal Hashem. About, very good sefer. I just, I just got it in the mail. About um, uh, different issues regarding Tzuadaka nowadays. People who have uh, various uh, problems uh, with um, their, um, their genitals. Um, of different uh, things being cut off and not working properly, and the question as to whether they're in the category of Fitsua Daka, a little bit of, you know, a cringy issue to uh, discuss, but, you know, it's halacha, and um, the, uh, and he discusses, you know, people who have to have various operations and the like, prostate operations, where there are certain um, testicles get cut, where uh, certain uh, types of, um, um, uh, where, where, where uh, certain parts of uh, the um, uh, the uh, the person's anatomy uh, has to be uh, reshaped or or, dis- or disfigured, and uh, the question is uh, whether uh, certain tubes have to be cut off, whether the loss of these tubal connections and the like causes the person to be prohibited from getting married. And every single chapter, he quotes uh, various um, uh, opinions who say, well, this is an exception because here the surgery is going, like the Chazunish says, it's internal to the body, it's not on the external organ, and therefore the person is still permitted to get married. And different opinions, it's only one testicle that was cut, not both testicles in the person, and therefore the person is permitted to get married. Different opinions that are brought for leniency. So in the back, he has chubos that are written by some of the contemporary postgim. So he brings a chuba by Ravasha Weiss, Shlita. Ravasha Weiss starts off his chuba by quoting his Yushami. He starts the shuva by quoting this Yerushalmi. He says, oh, we see from the Yerushalmi that uh, these matters are pikuach nefesh, and therefore we have to go out of our way to find the terim. So he says, every time there's a makhlokis, I'm going to be matir. Every time there's a makhlokis, I'm going to be matir. Uh, unless, you know, the surgery is not necessary altogether, but if the surgery, you know, is really necessary, so every single makhlokis, I'm going to be matir. Um, so that's basically what Rabbi Yitzchak Kachanan says, that the sefer called Fia Beget, that talks about the steps that you are allowed to take in order to pressure or he counseled for an husband to give his wife a get, what's considered to be permissible pressure, what's not considered to be permissible pressure. Also, an area where Rav Schwartz was very, very heavily involved. Rav Schwartz here as well would always look for some sort of an argument to allow for court pressure and things of that sort in order to get a husband to give a get. Um, and Rav Yitzchak Elchanan um, basically says this in the context of we have to help people uh, get married who wouldn't otherwise be able to get married. So the author of this Sefer, Kfiyah Beget, Rav Tzvi Gartner, quotes this Yerushalmi, 
quotes this of uh, um, this uh, statement of Yitzchak Ochanan and the Ein Yitzchak, um, and then he goes on uh, to say that uh, upon you know first glance or cursory glance, meaning you know this is my reading of uh, the uh, of the upshot of all of this. Says Rabbi Gardner, Rabbi Gardner is a wonderful, wonderful uh, rabbi lives in Eretz Yisrael with whom I have sometimes consulted over the years regarding get and aguna issues. He says this argument to say that we have to look for hetaver and we have to help people because otherwise it's like pikuach nefesh. He says, I think you can apply this argument not only to somebody who would otherwise be considered a pesuah daka or a kushavcha, but I think you can apply it to every single situation of igun as well. He just leaves it as a tzarchi or to cover his bases. Um, but that I think is an extremely important generalized comment that he makes, you know, that informs really the entirety of the state that he wrote Kofiya Baget. So, whether that's the Yushami that Schwartz had in mind or not, I can't say for sure. For Schwartz quotes, this idea that all these matters are considered to be Hatzalas and Nefashas, Shepsude Kahal, that for a person to be Pasal Kahal, the lesser Isha Baila is Kedine Nefashas Damya. It's considered to be like Dine Nefashas. It's considered to be like Dine Nefashas. So therefore, you really have to try to help uh, this individual. Um, and then he quotes, of course, from Moshe after he quoted the Maharsham, that you don't have to worry about uh, marriages performed by a reform, uh, a reform rabbi, and certainly with respect uh, to uh, the children, um, uh, that uh, they should not be considered to um, to be uh, mamzerim. And then he adds another very interesting consideration. If you look five lines before the end of the Chuba, where he says, "Venerally," in the middle of the line, "Venerally," oh, Shuvda, he says, "Let's look at this woman. This woman ran off, okay, with a Muslim man." Um, and so what does she have? She had two non-alakic marriages, and then she runs off with a Muslim man. What does that tell you about the mindset of this woman? This is one of these hochiach sofo atchiloso type of statements. Let's, you know, look at, you know, the end result, what happened to this woman. There must have been some reason the woman insisted every single marriage she had was with a reformed rabbi, right? The Gamachaka, because the reformed rabbi was not going to require a get. So that's why the reformed rabbi married her off to the second husband without a get, because they don't require gets in the reformed community. The Gamachaka, Uzva Baila, and then she abandoned her second husband. It shows you she never had the mindset to be married according to Das Moshe Rizal. She never had the mindset to have a real, genuine Jewish marriage. If you look at the fact she wants to go, it was out of her way to go to the worst possible, you know, halakhic ceremony that you could have, a reform marriage, you know, and then she runs off with some Muslim fellow, um, and therefore he takes that into account as well. Very, very interesting svara, very interesting argument. I saw a similar svara employed by the Satman Dayan, had a svara like that with respect to people who are completely irreligious who enter into a marriage ceremony and then there's no get at the end. He says, well, you know, if they're completely irreligious, they probably didn't have the mindset to have a Jewish marriage altogether. I mean, that's a big chiddush to say that as a general pervasive rule across the board. But certainly if you're saying that, you know, when the stakes are not, you know, the high stakes in the sense that the marriage took place in front of a reformed rabbi, nobody there was Shoma Shabbos, he didn't have any kosher edim, so it's much easier uh, to be makel uh, in, this, uh, particular, uh, in this particular circumstance. Um, so that's um, with respect to Simon based, and let's move on to Simon Gimel. Now Simon Gimel is, I think, of the Mamzeris Chubos in this collection of, of Schwartz, I think this one is probably the most mechudash. This one is probably the the biggest um, uh, chiddush, the, the biggest um, uh, you know dispensation 
biggest novelty, thank you, of all of the chuvas that Rav Schwartz, uh, that Rav Schwartz authored um, in this collection, and we'll see exactly why in a moment. Um, yes, Sam. Rabbi, from what you've said, can somebody, uh, in all of the chuvas here, and I'm not a Pauzek or anything, I'm just simply asking, uh, does it have to be a reform rabbi, or it should, could be any uneducated or less educated or less knowledgeable? No, you have to be reformed. Because with reform, then you're dealing with people who really are not, um, not only do they not keep, number one, they, they are, the assumption is that they, they don't keep Shabbos, they don't keep kosher, they don't keep any mitzvahs. It's before some. It's very well known that they don't keep any mitzvahs. The Marasham writes that in order to invalidate somebody from being a kosher aide, so normally you need testimony. You need you know witnesses who come to the Besdin, and they testify that uh, this person is eating the veilus, this person is violating Shabbos, because otherwise, why should a person be removed from their cheskas kashrus? But the Marasham says, he quotes various authorities who say this, that when the, it's, a, it's in public, it's known that the person affiliates themselves with a type of a movement where everybody uh, violates a mitzvah, where they score mitzvahs, where they have a disdain towards Shmira Shabbos and uh, towards the uh, basic Yisodas foundations of belief and the like. So then it's just public knowledge, essentially, that they are invalid witnesses and you don't have to go through that whole rigmarole. If somebody's just an ignoramus, they could be a shomer mitzvah. There is a no uh, public knowledge a type of a presumption that the person has been invalidated for being a kosher witness or that other people who would be at the ceremony are invalid either. If it's a reform ceremony, so that's the assumption basically with respect to the person who's officiating and also with respect to those who are attending the ceremony as well. So therefore, it's much easier uh, to invalidate that type of a ceremony. That's why Schwartz says himself, that's why he contrasts the two tshubas, the two responses in the Marasham, one in which he says, well, it was uh, from the Kas HaMishchadshim, that the officiant was uh, from uh, this uh, new uh, progressive uh, anti-Torah sect, and uh, therefore you can assume that it was an invalid marriage, and the uh, case where the person was just an Amaharitz, where he says, don't jump to any conclusions. Don't jump to any conclusions. Yeah. In, in English, if it's of, a, of a, that, that particular sect, we assume pro forma, it's no good. And if it was some other kind of thing, you have to investigate and figure out who's involved. And I think so that's correct. I think that's correct. But even with the pro forma assumption, so Rev Schwartz still says, and this was always his approach, in all the years that I worked together with Rabbi Schwartz, it didn't matter there was a reform ceremony, he would still do the research to the extent that, that he possibly could. Because maybe this case would be an exception, where it turned out that there was a reform rabbi and kosher witnesses and things were done properly, so he would always do the research in every single case, to the extent that it was possible to research. Yeah. What about conservative Jew, uh, rabbis? We're going to get to that, the conservative rabbis. The conservative rabbis also, but Moshe Feinstein says that, that, that there's an assumption that they're not doing things, uh, according to halacha, and most of the people who would be in attendance would probably not be Shomash Shabbos, the conservative rabbis as well, but um, and there, there's more of a chance, because you did have sort of a traditional conservative movement as well, so there's more of a possibility that you would have to worry that it could be a kosher wedding. Uh, some postkin were more makele than others to say, no, if the rabbi himself was conservative, even if he was personally Shomer Shabbos, the fact he affiliated himself with a conservative ideology would cause him to be postulatus. But Moshe started out not necessarily saying that, but as the years went on, he was more inclined in that direction, at least with respect to the conservative rabbis. So this case was where the Masada Kedushin is just said to be Machal Shabbos. So getting to your point, Sam, in this case, not an Ingramus, but not a reform rabbi either. Something in the middle. 
The rabbi was in Mechal Shabbos, and it wasn't done under any like shul auspices. Like, you know, some Mechal Shabbos gets the Jewish man and Jewish woman together in his office or his home, performs a wedding in kind of like a shoddy, informal sort of way. Now the husband is not giving a get, or, or, or the husband, or forget about the, the get, or the, the woman remarried without a get and had a child, so what's going to be the status of this, um, of this child? So he says, well, what do we know about the officiant? Well, we know about him that he didn't keep Taras Mishpacha, he didn't keep family purity, uh, and so therefore, and that was very well known about him, and uh, therefore he was certainly a puzzle, a puzzle aedus, a puzzle aedus himself. Um, what about the Maisa Kedushin? He says, well, it wasn't officially reformed, it wasn't officially conservative, but it was a double ring ceremony. Double ring ceremony, so uh, we know Rav Moshe writes in one place, well, that's a good indication that they didn't know exactly how the marriage was taking place, but elsewhere he writes, well, sometimes you have a couple where they really do know that it's the husband's giving her the ring that's effectuating the marriage, but they have a double ring ceremony anyway, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the marriage was invalid. So that itself uh, doesn't create a, uh, a certainty that uh, there was an invalid marriage. It just says, He says that it, the whole thing is a question mark um, without knowing if the witnesses themselves were kosher. We don't know who the two witnesses were, whether there were two witnesses who were designated, there weren't two witnesses who were designated, and he quotes again, he quotes the, uh, the Maharsham that we quoted uh, earlier, that if you did have a reform marriage, uh, that there's rumor to uh, be, um, to be Mako. Um, uh, but, uh, but in this particular case, he says, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit harder. It's a little bit harder. Um, uh, so he says, uh, though, uh, that if you take a look, there's another case of uh, the, uh, of the Maharsham, and this is, uh, reproduced for you on page, uh, five, okay, that's a Simon of Kuf, uh, Kuf Yud. Where in this particular case, there were also two things going on. One is that the rabbi who officiated was a rabbi from the Miskachim, and there he officially writes in parentheses, reform. But there was something else going on as well, where uh, the husband who uh, got married, um, so he um, <laughs> ran away, and he was somebody, and he became a, uh, and he became a mumer. He became a mumer. Um, the, he became an Eno Yehudi. Look at the third line of Yehudi. He became an Eno Yehudi. So here the Maharsham relies upon a Mari Mintz. Remember, we, we, uh, we, Larry uh, asked, what if a person uh, leaves the faith? Are they considered no longer to be, uh, to be Jewish? So he quotes a Mari Mintz who says that there is a, uh, an opinion. Um, that's quoted in the Torah. If you look at source Dalin on page five, it says, Yisrael Muma Shekidesh Kiddush HaKiddush HaTzukam Yemenah If you have an apostate, a Jew who apostatizes and then he performs a wedding, then it's a valid wedding like we said, again, it's required the Yesha Omim to Muma Lachal Shazah Fahesi Balabad Akum So Muma is somebody who violates Shabbos openly and he worships uh, idols, he goes to another religion. Dino Ka'akum Gomer Fe'en Kiddush HaKiddush And it's not considered even to be a valid marriage below Nehira. He says, it doesn't seem that way. If you look at the Gemara Yavamas we quoted before, Arehu ki Yisrael Gomer, once a person becomes Jewish, even if they're going to go back to their previous faith, they're still considered to be Jewish. It doesn't seem like the sources support that opinion. But it happens that there are those who say, there's a Mari Mitz, it's quoted by the Ber Hetev, on that simon, who says, well, we're Mahmoud, we say that the Kedushin are considered to be Val Kedushin, but only on a Jerobanan level, only rabbinically. So the Maharsham goes with that. He says, oh, you know what? Maybe we really can uh, consider the possibility that this person, if he went off the derech, became an Eno Yehudi, maybe he already had those tendencies at the time that he got married. Look, I mean, he got married with a Machal Shabbos as the officiating rabbi, so, you know, what kind of commitment did he really have? So there was already a cloud of suspicion over him. 
So he brings sources that when there's already a clatter of suspicion over somebody, if they go bad, they go rancid afterwards, it shows they were never any good. And maybe he says that the person really should be viewed as somebody who was a mumer to begin with. So you have a fake fake He says, I don't know, he doesn't know for sure. Suffolk that the aid him that the witnesses were invalid witnesses, he doesn't know in this case. But, but Suffolk that even if the witnesses were valid, maybe this person really wasn't Jewish because he was a mumer. So, Rav Schwartz, even though I have to tell you that the vast majority of Postkin, the Nodab Yehuda says that this opinion of quoted in the Torah of the Yesha Omrim, he says, Leish the Chosh, Omrim, is that? Nobody pays any attention. We assume 100% you're a Jew, you're a Jew all the way from, you know, your bris milah to your last dying day, or whatever the expression goes. Um, so he says that in this particular uh, case, um, says Rav Schwartz, even though uh, there are lots of achronim, um, uh, that uh, completely dismiss uh, the possibility of taking that into consideration, he does take it into consideration. He says uh, that um, in this case, uh, as we need only done, and we have to finish up because we're um, already over, he says that since uh, the Mekadish was um, in fact a Mechal Shabbos, he didn't tra- convert in this case to another religion, it was just a Mechal Shabbos. And uh, certain folks can say that for sure you don't take into account because we assume everyone is just Mechal Shabbos and Tino Shadishba, like the Minchas Yitzchak says, the Ganko Maisa Kedushan and Yamashunet, and the entire Maisa Kedushan was done in kind of like a weird fashion, so where it, um, where there's no Chazaka, there's no presumption that it was done properly. So even though we can't say for sure that the Adam were no good, we'll assume based on this type of fake faker like the Marasham said, that we can at least be make them, since it's a suffix with respect to the children, um, that with respect to the children, to the, um, to any child who was, um, who was born, um, that, um, that the children would not be considered to be, um, to be mamzerim. A really fascinating thing, but says from Schwartz, probably in recognition of the novelty of uh, this particular, uh, chugos, he says, look, it's Hatzal's Nefashos, and therefore, I'm going to, you know, uh, add my two cents. Apparently, a rabbi had approached him who wanted to be Mekel, and Schwartz gives this as an additional argument. But he says to Kedai, he's talking to the rabbi in question, Kedai, Shemaloso, Kvoda Yoshi Bezdin, Shemalos, Kvoda Yoshi Bezdin, Olin Yenzet. It's better to do one final type of intensive investigation because to the extent that we can really find out to what degree there really were, you know, witnesses who were not, uh, who were not kosher witnesses and who was really in attendance at the wedding, we're going to have a much better feeling about, about this psaac. So he does say that um, given that this is really kind of going out on a limb, uh, a little bit to take these uh, types of factors into consideration. So in this case, he does encourage some further investigation. We'll stop here. Uh,